Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh out loud humor and hitting you between the eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants because here we go. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. I wonder what they served. Like, they're given a dinner for Jesus, who just raised their brother from the dead. Okay, that's some pressure. I might have gone all JoJo and Chip on them. I, I'm just telling you right now. I'd have brought out the platters, the linen napkins wrapped in greenery, the fresh greenery. I mean, how awesome is this? But it says, Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment, or nard, some of yours says, made from, well, here it is, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But Jesus said, leave her alone, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I sat back and uh, sat on my patio yesterday morning, and I just bullet-pointed thoughts. And I want to encourage you to do this. I, I think it's just a great practice. I say it all the time. Don't jump to a commentary to understand something, take the scripture first and read through the story. And as you're reading through the story, write down every thought, every interesting thing you see, every question you have. That is what it is to be in that and to meditate on it. Because remember, we have the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And it's a relationship. He is talking to you. It's not just about academic facts. And I could do that all day long. I could give you the meaning of words. I could tell you that he came in on lamb selection day and what that was like and what this. But it's not just academic knowledge. It, it's what happens to you when you're in the word. It starts to become alive inside of you. And then it starts to penetrate. Your brain goes to things that are happening in your own life. And it starts to penetrate into those things. And it becomes applicable. And I do this with you guys through my life. But he wants to do it in yours. And so that's what I started with. And, and to be honest, I had an exhausting week. Emotionally exhausted of caretaking and taking care of and loving and all kinds of stuff. And so I just sat down with a deep breath and I thought, okay, Lord, let's, let's look at this story. And I did it for me, not for you. So I want you to do the same. It was six days before Passover. You know all about that holiday because I've taught it to you before. Passover is coming. The day that they sacrifice the lambs, the day they celebrate their freedom from bondage out of Egypt, and you know all that. And yes, it does give us a timeline. And that is important because we find out that when he comes in in a minute in his triumphal entry, that he's actually entering in on Lamb Selection Day. Does that bring it alive? Yes. 
because every family had to pick a lamb and bring it into their home and basically treat it as a pet, inspect it, get to know it because it could have no spot nor blemish. And three days later, right, they would then come and it would be sacrificed. So yes, all of that is there. This is the scene that's building up to that holiday. The fact is his hour has come. So far in the 11 chapters, over and over, what has been the phrase he has used and I have said, don't worry about it. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And we realize that we're on a divine schedule. He is keeping a divine schedule. He is staying within step of the will of his father. He says, I came to say and do all that the father has prepared. He has never panicked. He is never in a hurry. He has his ear tuned to the father and he's on a divine schedule. But the schedule is here. It's come. His hour has come. The whole second half of John is going to be about this hour. Do you realize that this is also somewhat sentimental in my heart because this is the last time he will be in this home with these people around this table? Think of all the times over the years that he has been in this home around this table with these people. This dinner is very different. I believe the atmosphere of this dinner is very different, but it is a, everything is about to change. I love to ponder about situations. And when I do that, you write it in pencil because I have no idea of what I'm thinking is true. But it's so interesting to me how in the synoptics and with John, the situation of this dinner, there are different details given, right? Uh, sometimes there's a little more. Oh, she anointed his head and his feet. Or she broke the jar in the other scenarios. She broke the jar of nard. Um, there's even a difference in the name of the home. Um, in John, it says that it is uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. Um, in the other, one of the other gospels, it says it is Simon the leper. Well, whose house is it? And then why all of a sudden does Judas bring up, oh, well, you should have given it to the poor. I sat back and I'm thinking, how did he even meet Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? I would love to see this episode of how they handle it on The Chosen, you know? I mean, how are they going to fill in with all of this creative uh, license that won't be wrong, but we don't know exactly what happened, and it just kind of fits the narrative? And I got to imagining, and I'm thinking, you know, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, you never hear of spouses. They're always together, right? Um, and then who in the world is Simon the leopard? And then I just started thinking, well, was it Martha's husband? Was it their father? Did he have leprosy? Possibly could Jesus have healed him? Was he one of the lepers that Jesus healed? I don't know. Or possibly did he have leprosy and die? And now Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they would care for their father. And along the way, they care for other lepers. And maybe they are the ones, the house that would take in the poor and be giving because they seem to do, be pretty well to do. And maybe that's how they met. And maybe that's how Jesus got to know them is because he constantly stayed at their house along the way because they took people in and they cared for the traveler and that's what they were like. And Martha ran that ship and Mary entertained and I think Lazarus was young. I don't know. 
But isn't it interesting to think about that over the years, they have developed this incredible friendship so much that it is a loving relationship. They seem to all be single. He's single. And it's just interesting to me. But this is going to be one of the last dinners or the last dinner that he has like this in their home. And this is a big deal. In the message, it was so funny. Certain phrases catch me funny. It says, Jesus entered Bethany where Lazarus, so recently raised from the dead, was living. I just think that's ironic. What was that like? I do not know. I mean, he was dead. Now he's alive. He's back at it. What did they talk about? What did they ask him? What did he see? Was he just asleep? Was he the first one to write the book, Five Minutes with Jesus in Heaven? And, you know, I saw, I don't know. Like, what was that? They were with Lazarus, just one sentence. You know, the one who was previously dead, who's now living. And we do know later, because of this, this is a pretty tough way to become a celebrity. He literally became a celebrity. Of course he did. He was the man known to be rotting in the cave that got up and walked out. Of course there would be a little bit of celebrity status. It says that Martha was serving. Of course she was. That's what Martha does, right? Martha is a two on the Enneagram. She's the helper. She's serving. This is what she does, whether you want her to or not, right? Two seem to step in and invite themselves in to serve, even when you don't ask them sometimes. But that's Martha. That's how she expresses her love and devotion. And she runs the place. She always has. She's probably the older one. And so she's back serving and doing what she does. Where's Mary? I don't know, but I'm going to assume some things. Um, But it says that Lazarus was sitting at the table with them. I think that's interesting. Why why do they got to tell me that? Does that mean that before, that it wasn't normal necessarily, that he hung out around the table with them? Could he have been younger, a younger guy? But now, dude, he's in. He has been dead and raised from the dead. And now he has become a celebrity, and to be quite honest, the catalyst for what is causing the hour. He's in. He's one of them. And now he is at this very important dinner, and he is one of the ones reclining at the table. (laughs) And by the way, who's going to argue? Who's going to say, what are you doing here? You're too young to... He was raised from the dead, okay? Um, We're going to find out later that his life is in danger. It's not just Jesus that is in danger, not just the disciples, but Lazarus is in some serious danger because literally he is a walking billboard for Jesus. And the religious leaders don't like it, not one iota. I want to know what they're talking about as they're reclining at the table. What do you think they're talking about? I think they're talking about the coming Passover. I think they're discussing the incredible tension that is building in the city. I think they are discussing um, their plan of attack. How are they going to do it? What is it going to be like when they go into the city? There's an arrest warrant out for Jesus. They hear that they even want Lazarus. Rumors get around. This is a little suburb outside of Jerusalem. I think the disciples are sitting there talking about 
how they are going to protect Jesus. I think they're sitting there trying to figure out how to deal with crowd control. I think they are trying to figure out how to deal with the Romans because they know the popularity and when they come into Jerusalem, the crowds are going to be unbelievable and the Romans are not going to like it one bit. And I think they are all sitting there talking about what in the world is about to happen. I think there is tension. The danger in the air is thick. Do you think they were arguing? Of course they were arguing. Think about their personalities. You got Peter, who says what he thinks, doesn't always think about what he's going to say, but he he says it, right? Got to love Peter. And so he's boisterous. What do we know about Thomas? He's logical. He's just flat out being logical. He's looking, just give me the facts. This is the situation. What are we going to do? Then there's Matthew who is probably detailing the maps of the city, has this schedule laid out uh, every minute where they ought to be, where they should not go. He knows the Roman world very well after being a tax collector. Then you got Simon the Zealot. He's trained his whole life before he met Jesus to be a zealot. Who are the zealots? They're the ones who want to kill the Romans, who want to overthrow them. So it's on. It's on like Donkey Kong for him. Like this is what he's lived for, really. And then what about Nathaniel? Nathaniel was the one at the beginning that when he first met Jesus says, you are the king of Israel. What's he thinking? Now imagine all of these men reclining around a table, getting ready to go in Jerusalem, and you tell me what you think the decibel level is like in that room. So I wrote what I think it looked like. Jesus alone knew what was coming. I wonder if he just sat back and listened. You know, where you realize that everybody else in the room is talking but him. They still didn't understand after everything they had seen and after everything he had taught them. It's hard to change a lifetime of teaching and expectation that the Messiah would be a military king like Moses, Joshua, Gideon, and David. They had learned so much. He had brought them so far. But this was a real-life situation. How in the world would they handle it? And then Mary breaks in. In the middle of that, She breaks in, and it says in one of the Gospels, she breaks the bottle, meaning she breaks the seal. So once the seal is broken, there's no going back. It's it's being used, okay? Well, they didn't have refrigerate after opening, okay? And so she breaks the seal. There's no going back, and the aroma fills the room. (laughs) I started laughing. I don't think the aroma in that room was too great to begin with. You got at least 13 men who, I don't know, they've been walking everywhere. Um, And not to mention, they've they've gotten their dander all up. They're all sweating, you know, arguing about what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, she walks in and she breaks the seal and the aroma fills the room. I picture a loud room gone completely silent amidst all the vibrato in the room. Her silent act of complete devotion silences everything. I wonder how long it took for them to realize what was going on. 
For Mary, Jesus was the only one in the room. I wonder where Mary was. Had she heard them talking? Do you know Mary? Where was Mary on the story of Mary and Martha? At his feet. She was able to be a disciple. I mean, he was a lover of women. I mean that in every good sense. You know what I'm saying? A lover and respecter of women. I mean, he had women following him. That was a disgrace to the religious leadership. He truly believed in that. And so he had said to Martha, no, I'm not gonna take this from Mary. Mary's chosen the better thing. She's being a disciple. I mean, nowhere in the world were women able to sit at the feet of a rabbi and learn and be useful. I mean, this was unbelievable. She wanted that. But in this scene, I don't see her at the table because I think it's a different scene. Don't think it's a teaching scene. It's a preparation scene for what is gonna happen at Passover. And I don't believe that was a place for a woman to sit in that culture. They would not have wanted her there. But do you think she was listening? <laughs> if I were gonna write an episode of The Chosen, I would have Mary write, why have they not called me? I would be so good at that. Does Dallas not know who I am? What, what's going on? Um, anyway, I see her just right there, right? I think Martha's busy, and Martha's like, Mary, I told you, cut the onions and quit eavesdropping. Let them do their thing. And she's like, oh my God, do you know what Peter just said? Oh my gosh. Do you know? I mean, I could just picture her, right? And she can't be a part of it. But I think she heard them talking, <laughs> listening regarding all the potential danger ahead. Had she seen Jesus's face, lost in thought as the others bickered about how to prepare or whether even to go? Something inside her felt the nudge. She knew what she must do. She went and she took her most valuable possession. By the way, it was worth a year's salary, a typical working man year's salary. She couldn't go fight beside him, but she could prepare him. She could anoint him. She could display her love and devotion by giving him all she had. She wasn't just giving him her nard, but her absolute devotion and vulnerability, which she displayed by washing his feet with her tears and letting down her hair. This scene was intensely personal and intimate and vulnerable. A Jewish woman did not let down her hair unless she was with her husband. And I'm not saying this in any kind of sexual way. I'm talking about an intimacy, a vulnerability, something personal. She could not go out and fight with him, but she would be all she had. She would lay it all out for him in that moment. A personal, intense scene. And John puts it in chronology that later Jesus will wash his disciples' feet. This act of humility that she displayed towards him. He, as the master, will then display it later to his disciples and say, this is what you are called to do. This very thing that Mary laid it all out um, to Jesus. I wonder how long it went on before the uneasiness of the disciples just could not be contained. How um, comfortable are you with um, 
demonstration of love or feeling. I don't think these guys necessarily were those kind of guys. To watch this, to sit and watch it, I wonder how uncomfortable it made them. I wonder what the feelings were like in them. Did they feel love? Did they feel guilt? Had they even forgotten about Jesus in their argument? Like, they don't even notice him sitting there. They're planning his whole life, his whole defense, what's gonna happen, and he's just sitting there. Do they feel shame, respect, peace, anger? I wonder, why did this act create such a anger and condescension in Judas? You say, why would you call Judas out? Well, I'm gonna call him out because he's the first one that opened his mouth. I think everybody else was thinking things, but he's the first one to say it, or he is the one that John points out because he wants to educate us about what is coming. John seems to point it out and use this to begin to set the scene for Judas's betrayal right in the midst of a scene of absolute dedication. He's setting up the opposite things here. So in one uh, one sense, you have Mary laying her life completely down, anointing him, this vulnerability and personal experience. And then John is going to use Judas. He's going to talk about Judas speaking up because can you imagine how uncomfortable Judas is in this situation? Because the fact is, he's already, there's going to be a betrayal and he's setting the scene for that. Um, I think there's so, John is masterful with his writing. Yeah, I think you could sit and think about that for a long time. This goes to show you that any act can be criticized and misconstrued. I mean, think about that. Who has something to say about this? People have something to say about everything. That's why you could literally be pouring out your guts completely vulnerable and broken. And somebody, because of their story or their bias or whatever, can criticize it because it has hit them away or impacted them some way. You remember the time I showed up to Bible study and I was madder than a hornet because I had been in an Aspire? And you'll remember this. And the whole way here, I was mad driving my car like a maniac because I had been to three different venues in three days. I was exhausted and I had given the message, you know, about my story like I did at Mother's Day, laying out my guts to the world about my pain. And what was one woman's response? I get an email that she was so appalled that we sang 40 seconds of the YMCA and that I needed to be in the world and not of it. And I drove and I thought, you know what, Lord? Somebody needs to get punched in the throat because who in this world goes to that event, listens to that message of me bleeding out on stage for you and be vulnerable that we're in this together and that we're gonna hang on to Jesus for dear life and you're gonna watch me leave there and the next day, the thing that stuck with you is you're gonna email me because I sang YMCA, da -da. really? What in the world? 
So this just goes to show me, this is the most precious, intimate, vulnerable thing I've ever seen for her to do. And there was all kinds of criticism in the room, all kinds of criticism. And so I'm telling you, we have an audience of one. And as a three who's worried about image half her life, you know, you just start to learn. It, it just doesn't matter. Judas could not possibly understand such an act because his greatest devotion was not to the poor, but to himself. John gives commentary about that. So we know that. John is telling us this, having already known what Judas did. He's going back and going, now listen, I need you to know a little something about Judas because it's coming. My question is, because I, my brain is weird, and I, my mentor, uh, you remember Professor Proverb? He always brings up these questions too. What in the world was he spending the money on that he was skimming off the top? I mean, he was following Jesus 24-7. So when he went into town, was he like sneaking off and, I don't know, found a girlfriend or a pub or, or what? I don't know. Or was he uh, had a little savings account? They didn't know about it on a off, you know, some offshore account in case things went real bad. He was outie. He was already taken care of. I don't know. What was he skimming off the top? See, these are things I do not know. But what we do know is that he was not devoted. And he was going to betray Jesus. And John is setting that up. This level of emotion and vulnerability was foolish to Judas. He was uncomfortable. His resp he responded with criticism. He did not share this adoration, this humility, and this kind of faith. Jesus once again stands up for Mary. He says, leave her alone. She is anticipating and honoring the day of my burial. Now here's the question. Was she anticipating that literally? I don't, I don't think she could. I mean, she knew there was danger. She knew, uh, you know, that it could go bad real fast. I don't necessarily think she thought she was anointing his body for burial, that she had that full understanding. But I think in that sense, it's the same idea as when Caiaphas opened his mouth and said it would be better for one man to die than the whole nation. And we realize he didn't even realize he was speaking prophetic words because man can mean something for evil, but God can use it in his plan for good. In this case, she was being vulnerable and giving her gift, and he goes, stop. Actually, she's anointing my body for burial. Did they pick up on that? Mm, I don't think so. Jesus' comment about the poor, okay? When he says, you'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. This is not calloused. It's not a calloused remark. He cares about the poor. What he is saying is there will always be a need, always. Do we not know that? I mean, you try to help in any situation, whatever it is you're, you're working in, in service, the more you get in to help, what do you realize? The more help is needed. It's never enough. It doesn't stop. That's the cycle of a broken humanity. There will always be need, and he is saying that, but there, you won't always have this moment with me. And so the fact is that Jesus is our priority, yes, but also we find our priorities in him. He is always the priority, and if he's not the priority, sometimes our priorities won't be what he's actually calling us to do. 
It might be about us. It might be about busy. It might be about a lot of things. But the fact is, we, he is our main. He is the priority. And out of him, we will find our priorities. This was not a story about taking care of the poor. It wasn't a story about priorities. It's a story about the heart. <clears throat> so right here, I stopped for a minute. Um, and I ask a question. I wonder if we would have found her gift to be extravagant or wasteful. And it reminds me of a definition of a word. Let me give you a definition. The word prodigal means spending money or resources freely and recklessly. Wasteful, extravagant, giving on a lavish scale. That's what the word prodigal means. We have a parable about that, don't we? Called the prodigal son, um, to where we thought he was given his inheritance and he spent it in a wasteful manner. But I'll never forget one of my favorite books ever that every person should read is by Tim Keller and it's called Prodigal God. Because really the idea of prodigal fits the father almost more than the son. Think about it. Such a lavish gift that's so extravagant that it's considered almost what? Wasteful. And so <clears throat> you have this idea, and I, I got to thinking about it. Basically, what did the son do? The son came to the father and said, basically, in this honor culture, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now, and I'm out. I want to know, would you have given your son the money after such an insult, would you have done it? Would you have given your son the money after such an insult? And if you did, can you imagine the criticism you would have gotten from your friends? Prodigal, spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wasteful, extravagant, giving on a lavish scale, the prodigal love of God, giving on a lavish scale, the reckless love of God. And then when he wasted it, because you know he will, did the father not know? <laughs> How many times have you given knowing full well they're going to waste it, right? So he gives this knowing full well he's going to waste it. How many times have you done this? Listen, listen, child. You have an opportunity right now. You're about to receive this. And I'm gonna tell you, if you don't manage it well, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're gonna wake up and in about nine months, you're gonna be stone cold broke again. And then what's gonna happen is you're gonna come back to me to fix it. And I'm gonna say no. <laughs> Y'all are laughing. I'm telling you right now, I'm going to say no. You better handle this right. And in the back of your mind, what are you thinking? Number one, you know they ain't going to do it. And number two, you know you're probably not going to say no. You should. Maybe you will. If you do, no matter what you do, someone's got an opinion about it because it's not their story. Right? And so you just sit there. 
So then when he wastes it, because you knew he would, would you have taken him back freely, given him your ring, and had a party announcing that he was back after what all he did? Would you? And I am sure, let me tell you why the father ran to him and put his coat around him. Because this son in an honor-shame culture was in danger of the community. You want to talk about being stoned for disrespect? He ran to his son. He wrapped his robe. He put his, his ring on his finger to say, no, you don't understand. He is my son. I'm glad he's back. He is protected in my fold. And I can imagine, you think the only criticism came from the older brother? Uh-uh. They're judging him left and right. Most ungrateful son in the world. I'm going to tell you right now, he's just going to fight in the calf, throw a party. That son's probably going to do it again. He ain't learned nothing. He needs to read the book on boundaries. <laughs> this father needs to ex exhibit some tough love because this son ain't going to learn dadgum thing. At the end of the party, it's the one who screwed up that's in the party, the one who looked pretty good still standing outside the party. We don't even know if he's coming in because he doesn't understand grace at all. He's still trying to maneuver the father by obedience. Neither one of them have a relationship. And my question at the end of the day is, what did happen when the father died? Because the son had already spent his inheritance. That's the bottom line. Did the older brother kick him out? Did they ever restore? This is the problem with parables. They're open-ended. So that means they just continue to teach you in whatever situation you are and the Holy Spirit gets to teach you through these parables because it doesn't finish the story. It acts like it all got tied up in a bow or maybe it didn't because the older brother's still standing outside. But here's the question. Are we not always trying to maneuver these kinds of questions at the time? And the fact is, in her heart, God moved in her heart in relationship and love to pour out everything she had. Who is anybody in that room to judge? It's about a relationship. Nothing is cut and dry. Nothing is a, an equation. You don't get this right. I'm constantly in this situation trying to figure out how much to give, how much not to give. Uh, do I have this boundary? Do I exhibit tough love? Or do I just exhibit an extravagant, wasteful love that everybody's going to judge if I'm pouring it out on this child? And which one's going to work, God? Which one will draw this child to you? What am I supposed to do? Am I training her for a future to be a good steward with her money, to be disciplined, to have a schedule? Or Lord, do I just need her heart to pour out when she exhibits the love of a mother that abounds and is extravagant? I don't know. Is anybody ever else in this audience in my spot? Right. So here's the thing. We're all in this together. We all support together. Don't be so quick to criticize when you're not in this situation. <clears throat> we don't know everybody's story, everybody's hurts, what everybody's gone through. There is no equation for life. There is not. Do not tell me, oh, well, obedience leads to blessing and then tie it into some kind of behavior. Because I'm going to say baloney on that. Because very often, obedience leads to suffering. And I'm going to tell you 
that I find it very interesting, and we'll pick this up next week. I find it very interesting that he always refers to his crucifixion as the hour of his glorification. That act of suffering was glorification. And I'm gonna tell you, sometimes that is very hard to wrap your mind around because, for example, Job. Job is not just remembered for all the tragedy. That's not what makes Job unique. Job had an incredible amount of tragedy. But the great thing about Job is the faith despite the tragedy. It was the suffering, the faith in the suffering that was Job's glorification. Jesus fulfilled what he came to do. When he was lifted up, it was like, he did it. He did it. He is who he says he is. He did what he said he was going to do. Like he took our punishment. He is prodigal. It is a reckless, extravagant love that may get trampled on, that may get wasted. But it is the extravagant love of God that draws you. I'm going to tell you right now, fear got me down the aisle. For sure. It did. Fear started my journey. I didn't want to go to hell. I grew up Southern Baptist, and I knew, I was like, my parents ain't going to hell. They're going to heaven. I'm going with them. This is the right story. Um, I believe it. And uh, yeah, this is awesome. I'm down. I felt that, uh and and I went down. But I'm going to tell you what is not the fear of God that draws men to true repentance. It is the love of God. When you meet the prodigal love of God, that's what changes things. So I don't have answers for you in your practical life because I don't have any for me. But the answer is, it is found in relationship with Jesus. He is still alive. He still is in control. And he still talks to us. So I better stay really close to him Because I promise you, I do not have the ability in my flesh to pour out an extravagant love unless I am tied in to that kind of love. And he will, if I listen, if I listen, give me a balance in those kinds of things. This is the beauty of Bible study. This is why I get so frustrated. We need to teach the Bible. Teach the Bible (laughs) because this is the beauty of it. It applies in every way and in every topic. We've got to teach the Bible so that we fall in love with it and we spend time in it and it can transform our life. If we don't, It becomes a list of do's and don'ts and try harder and habits and all of those things that can weigh us down. The black and white of this cannot give us every answer in every situation, but the black and white of this introduces us to the one who can, and he will speak to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Bible is amazing because we have a God who is amazing. So get your face in the book. John chapter 12, we're not even done with it. But go back, read through this. 
let it sink in and you journal about it. What was that scene? What would that be like? Has there ever been a time that you risked everything to pour out before the Lord? Just the broken vessel. Those kinds of things. Do you display an extravagant love? Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you so much for your word. I don't know where I would be without it because it constantly reminds me of who you are. And in a world where I feel like I don't understand a darn thing, I feel like I don't have the power to fix anything. Lord, I am just constantly reminded, but you do. And if I listen to you, you will guide every step and along my life's journey through even brokenness and vulnerability, I will pour out to the people around me the hope of Jesus. We are not a citizen of this kingdom. We are going to see that in this scenario, at the time of your hour, that actually life is birthed from death. Lord, I honestly cannot wait until I pass out of this life and into your presence and I get the first whiff, the first aroma of what true life was intended to be. What a celebration that will be. But until then, Lord, may I listen to your voice and walk in your ways. I sure love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.